0: Well, good morning. Boy, great to have you all here today. We are in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So there are three of them that are called the synoptic Gospels. In other words, they look at Jesus through the same eye, optics, same eye. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic Gospels, and then there's John. So we're in one of the synoptic Gospels, Mark, in chapter 6. So you can either, if you have a Bible, you can open it up, look in your Bible. If you have your handout, your bulletin, you can follow in the handout, and it also will be on the, on the screen up here. So let me just tell you quickly where we are you know, over the last number of weeks. We have watched Jesus... Perform a number of what was called messianic miracles. In other words, this pointed people to the fact that he was he was God. Uh, Isaiah especially points out these miracles and that the Messiah, who is God, will be performing these miracles. So we've looked at things such as him conquering a legion of demons by casting him into the sea. We saw him stilling the storm uh, just with a word. We saw him healing a hemorrhaging woman, raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, healing lepers, restoring sight to the blind, uh, healing those who are paralytics, etc. So all of these things are going on and it's causing a great deal of amazement uh, with people. And now he's getting ready. He's already called the disciples, the 12 disciples, and now he's getting ready to send them out and to train them. But before he does that, he's, he's going to go home. And you're thinking, boy, here's Jesus doing all this stuff. How is he going to be received at home? I'll never forget when I became a Christian on December thirty-first, nineteen seventy 1971, 11.45 p.m., sitting in the hallway of a Marriott hotel. Uh, I became a Christian. And I thought, what what in the world? will my mom and dad think? I really thought my mom, she drugged me to church, so I thought my mom would be pretty happy, but I wasn't sure about my dad. Uh, I mean, he if, if there was a spaghetti supper, he would go, and that was maybe twice a year he would go, and that was it, and I didn't know what kind of reception I would get there. But I knew that my life was changed, that Jesus made a difference in my life, and I knew that when I was gonna go home, I was gonna be able to sit down, and I did do it. I sat down with my dad that I didn't get along with at all, at all. And I was able to look my dad in the eye and tell him for the first time that I could remember how much I had loved him. And it was because of the difference that Jesus made in my life. I just didn't know how he would take it, me becoming a Christian. So now let's look and see how Jesus was received at home. He goes back to Nazareth. He went away from there. This was at Jairus' house. He and his disciples are going. This is where he raised that little girl from the dead. Now he went to his hometown, his disciples were with him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense. They were, it's the word, scandalizo. They were scandalized by him. So in other words, it didn't go really well. So he leaves Jairus after healing his daughter, raising her from the dead. The disciples go. He goes right into the synagogue, and he begins uh, to preach. Now, we don't know from this text what was said, but we do know from Luke, synoptic gospel, we know from Luke exactly what was said. He took the passage out of Isaiah 61, which pointed to the Messiah. These are the messianic works of the Messiah. And then Jesus said, Today, these things are being fulfilled in your midst. So here's a kid from the hometown saying, I'm God, I'm doing all these things. I fulfill all the messianic prophecies right here, right now, and they—they were—it's the word astonished, which can be used positively or negatively. If I were to say, if I were to use the word shocked, so if somebody went up to one of you gals and gave you and proposed to you and pulled out a four-carat uh, diamond ring, you would be shocked at that. But also we would turn on the TV and look at what happened in Las Vegas. And we would be, same word, shocked at that. The context would determine how it's used. Um, Walter Bauer, who is an expert, a lexicographer of the New Testament, said you could use the word offended astonishment. Or he said it's like the word literally means to be knocked out of your senses. Well, they couldn't believe it. So they ask these questions. And the first question has no, no verbs, three phrases, no verbs. From whence this one, pointing to Jesus, these things? I mean, they just didn't get it. And they said, but is not this guy just a carpenter? Isn't he the, the son of Mary? And probably underscoring Jesus' illegitimacy. And then saying, said, but his brothers and sisters are right here. He can't be their brother. And so they were scandalized by him. I'll tell you this passage made me reflect upon my own life. As I look back at my own life, familiarity with Jesus. They were very familiar with Jesus, and so they had Jesus in their own little own little groove of what they thought he should be like because they knew him. And that was like me growing up. My mom drugged me to church every Sunday. I mean I couldn't I know the doctrine wasn't great. And I, I couldn't tell you because I just didn't listen. All I knew is what, when I was sitting there in the back, I could tell you there were 27 lights. I knew the sequence of the lights. I had everything numbered. I knew how many windows there were. I knew how many lights there were. And during the message, when I was a little kid, I used to love to get down on my hands and knees on the ground. Mom thought I was playing. And then when she wasn't looking, singing a song or something, I'd start crawling under the seats. And I would try and work my way all the way to the front, turn around and come all the way back. So, but I was very familiar with Jesus. And so when somebody told me about Jesus, I was familiar with Jesus. Oh, yeah, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, yeah, sure. And I was just like those people in Nazareth. So um, don't let, the point is, don't let familiarity with Jesus squeeze out the joy of having a personal relationship with him. Believe me, going to church makes you just about as much a Christian as walking into a garage makes you a car. So don't let familiar, you might be familiar with Jesus because you go to church, but don't let that squeeze out the joy of really having a life-saving, joyful relationship uh, with Christ, the living Christ, personal relationship with him. So Jesus reacts to it. He says, a prophet's not without honor, except in his. He uses these three terms, I think, that are critical. Except in his own hometown, amongst their own relatives. And then he used the word in his own household. He was equating himself with somebody they should have known really, really well because they were all followers of Abraham. He's virtually quoting Abraham here. And he's saying, look, as Abraham was the first prophet, I'm a prophet too, but what makes a prophet a prophet isn't their education. It's not their family background, and it's not the fact that they've achieved something. It's a divine calling, and it's being endowed by the Holy Spirit of God. So he virtually quotes Abraham's call, go from your country, hometown, from your kindred, relatives, from your father's house, your household, to a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make make you a great nation, and out of you through all the nations are going to be blessed. That's Jesus. Jesus was equating himself to Abraham. Just like throughout the book of Mark, he equates himself to the exodus uh, that, that takes place. You see those, those pictures all the time. The painful irony is, is that his hometown, even his own family who were followers of Judaism, uh, claimed to be followers of Abraham, uh, could not see it. And he could, so it says, and he could not do mighty work or a miracle there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. I would say if somebody asked me, well, Jeff, how was church today? Uh, things go well today? Uh, not really that good. I just healed a few people. I would say that's a pretty good Sunday. You know, if I could go home, I just laid hands and healed a few people. But for Jesus, there was no mighty miracle here. There was no mighty miracle, mighty work. He did heal because of his compassion. He healed a few people. But then he says this, he marveled at their unbelief. So let me just camp there just for a second. I want to give you a few encouragements. Number one, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, again, I want to challenge you. If you're familiar with him, don't let that overshadow the fact that he really wants to have a personal relationship with you. Don't let him marvel at your unbelief just because you sort of know the lingo. you've, You've been inoculated from the real disease, okay? Don't... Don't let Jesus marvel at your unbelief. Or if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe you've been a believer in Jesus Christ for years and years, and, and you pray just because it's a ritual to pray, and let's say God does some things. Let's say God does, the, he answers something, and, and in your mind you're just passing it off as coincidence or good luck or good fortune. You know, rather than you are the recipient of a loving, caring, sovereign God. Whatever you do, Don't have heaven be saying, looking down at us when God is so gracious to answer our prayer or get involved in our lives and have heaven marvel at our unbelief. So look for, testify of God's miracles that are happening in your life and be careful to give Jesus um, every opportunity instead of marveling at your unbelief to be thrilled. At your gratitude. So at this point, he goes home, there's rejection. So now, because he's rejected, he is going to send out the 12. Now we start this, what's going to culminate in what we would call the Great Commission. So we sort of get to see the Great Commission take place before it's more formalized at the very end of Matthew. when you get to Matthew, you're going to see this command to make disciples. And you're going to see that word make disciples. That's the only imperative there, command, but there are three participles. And this is, we'll see this in this passage, as you're going. In other words, you're going to see them going town to town as they're going, baptizing. And the word baptizing there really just means to identify with. It was used in the Old Testament of a, a, a dyer of cloth. Someone who would take cloth. They would take the cloth and they would immerse it in the dye, pull it out, and it, it would baptize. It, the cloth would be baptized. In other words, it would take on the identity of the dye. So now you have these disciples going out as they were going. They were taking on the identity of Jesus, baptized, taking on the identity of Jesus. We would call it incarnational living, and they would be teaching. In other words, the word teach, te to observe, means to conform one's actions to. So now I'm taking on the identity of Jesus. I'm conforming my actions to the life of Jesus, and you see that in this passage. He calls the 12. He sends them out two by two. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. He charges them not to take anything for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money no, or in their belts, but to wear sandals, not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them, so that when so that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So at this point, they're living out the Great Commission. And there's some wonderful principles I hear that I think we can take away from this little vignette of the Great Commission. And the first is this. Mission is enhanced by rejection. It's it's not... Stuffed. It's it's not set aside. It's it's not uh, pushed off. But mission is enhanced by rejection. Rejection doesn't thwart the mission, it it propels it. You see this especially in the book of Acts. It's, It's when they ran into struggles. It's when they ran into problems. It's when they ran into persecution. Did it propel the mission out into the world exactly where Jesus says it should go? So it is enhanced by rejection. Just as Jesus taught with authority, now his rejection The rejection of one, he now empowers and gives authority to 12 going out in twos. So everything is multiplied. It's not just Jesus going town to town. It's all these disciples going town to town. As Jesus taught with authority, they now will teach and preach with authority. As Jesus cast out demons, they too go out and they cast out demons, uh, overcoming the strong man. As Jesus healed the sick as a sign of inauguration of the new age to come and the new creation, so they too now go out and they heal uh, the sick, anointing them with oil. Matthew adds to this, uh, Matthew, a synoptic, singular eye, optic of Jesus, looks at this passage and he says to them, what else is happening here? Jesus, as he goes to the people and now sending the disciples to the people, he says the sheep are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He says, and so when you go, you go to the harassed and the helpless. So I looked up, I think one of the greatest expositors in the last hundred years in the United States is S. Lewis Johnson. And so I looked up what he said about this particular passage in Matthew. Uh, Synoptic part, Matthew 9, 36. What does he say about the harassed and helpless? He said you could literally translate those words harassed and helpless as fatigued. Now think in your mind of the people that you relate to. Think of the people at work. Think of the people in your neighborhood. Think of the people you know. How many would you say are harassed and helpless? Or how about fatigued? Know anybody fatigued or forlorn? Or dejected or deserted? or then distressed or depressed. Jesus is telling them, Jesus is telling us, those are the kinds of people we're going out to. Those who are depressed and dejected and distressed and fatigued and harassed and helpless. Those are the ones that we go out to because they don't have a shepherd John 10 then says, yeah, they have shepherds, but those shepherds really are wolves who are plundering the flock. So last week, Cheryl and I had the privilege of going to, we went to Chicago to watch the club, the the clubs, watch the Cubs, watch the Cubs play uh, the Dodgers. And so we were sitting, we're sitting there and right next to me, because we're in the family section, right next to me I sit next to, and if you're a Cubs fan, you probably know Kyle Schwarber. Okay, big Kyle. It's all the home runs. So I sat right next to his dad and to his uncle. And I, all of a sudden, I realized, as we got in our conversation, I asked him, oh, what do you do? He was, a, he was a pitcher for Ohio State. He was uncle of Kyle. His dad was, was there. they live in Cincinnati. And um, he started talking about his life. He said, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. You know, I oh, I'm a pastor. <laughs> no, actually, actually, what I really said was, I said, did you play? He said, yeah, I, I pitched for Ohio State. And he goes, oh. And I said, oh, that's, that's cool. I said, uh, I used to play for LSU. He said, really? What position? And I said, tenor sacks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that loosened things up a little bit. <laughs> So we started talking, and all of a sudden I realized this man is in so much pain. So much pain. I mean, he had triplets, three boys, his wife left him, he's going through all the struggles of life. And here's this massive guy, a mountain of a man. And the the pain he's, and, and I'll tell you, I kept thinking of our vision statement the entire the entire time. The reason we are here as a church is to provide hope and healing from the gospel hope and healing. I'm sitting there talking to him thinking, this is why God has us at this stupid game. It's because oh, we won it, by the way. <laughs> uh, but that's why it's because this man needs the hope and healing power of the gospel. And the entire game I witnessed to him about the love of the whole game it's just it was amazing to me and we talked after we talked the next game as well so never look at a closed door never look at a dead end as an as an end of the road as you trust and follow Jesus closed doors uh, dead ends are just wonderful new opportunities just beyond the wall that only faith will take you through so um, yeah, you're going to go through some tough times. You're going to go through some hard times. But don't try to erase those hard times. Embrace those hard times. It's those times that will propel you into all a whole new experience. You know, I think of when I first started pastoring a church, I got out of Dallas Seminary. I had no idea I was even going to go to seminary. It was the last thing in my mind until I became a Christian. So I end up going to seminary. And then when it, when I got out, I was just praying for any church to take me. None did, so I had to start one. Uh, So so we actually, there were six six people that started a church, a little church. And I told Cheryl, I said, look, we're we're gonna pour our, we're not gonna be like other pastors. All they wanna do is start somewhere, move up, move up, move up, move up, move up. I didn't want any of that much. I said, just send me to a place where we can spend our entire lives. That was my only prayer. We wanna go to a place where we can spend our entire lives pouring our lives into the lives of the people. And so it was a little West Texas town. It was a ranch, oil ranching uh, town. And six people started it. And we just loved those people. And through the three years we were there, 365 people trusted Christ. We baptized them. And the church is about, started with six, ended up with about 400 or so. And then I won't go through the gory details. We'll have some gory detail at the end of the message. But um, I, I was absolutely rejected by the leader of the church. I was rejected and shoved out. It it absolutely, at the same time, my wife is in the hospital, we give birth to our first son, child number three, Uh, my dad dies, and I get thrown out of the church. All those things happened all at once. I'll guarantee you getting thrown out of the church was by far the most painful. And yet, what that did, that closed door did nothing but through faith, open a door that I can't even begin to tell you how wonderful it was. I can't tell you. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't. We have spent the most fabulous 27 years here at Parkview I can ever even imagine. Just getting to be here with you guys has been the ministry thrill of our lives. It has been an absolute, the biggest joy we could absolutely ever even imagine and it's because it comes through the pain of rejection so don't try to erase pain don't try to erase dead ends embrace them let god use them and open doors through faith in your lives secondly mission works best as a team so he calls these 12 he begins sending them out two by two with authority so real quick just a few points here Again, ministry was never intended to be done in isolation. It's always meant to be done in a team. That's Parkview is built on that. Everything is done as a team, not in isolation, but as a team. You go to the Great Commission. They're all plural participles. Going together, plural, or second person plural, or or, um, second person plural, Imperative, make disciples. All of them are that way. And I think part of it is because Jesus said that everything should be established by two or more witnesses. But I think most importantly, they were sent out in teams because by this all people will know that you are, that you plural, second person plural, that you plural are my disciples if you have love one for another. I think they were sent out in, in teams like that so that the people could see that they love each other. Obviously, hey, you want to go this way? No, I don't want to go that way. You know, obviously there's some disagreements and stuff, but they love each other. And then they love the people that they're talking to. And that's, Jesus said, that's the way people are going to know. That's how they're going to know. If they can see love in you guys as you go out. So doing life and ministry together in the context of love, I think is one of the greatest ways that people can see Jesus. That's why, is John McHale in this service? Where's John? Is he here? He's, he's probably getting his waiters on. I think he's going to be in the tank. But, uh, you know, John McHale, he, he sort of oversees our community groups. And that that's why we make such a big deal of our community groups. It's because in that context, you can love each other. So we just had our community group. When was it? I see J.Y. Duke uh, Friday night, right? Friday night. So we had our community group Friday night. And just... You know, everybody, we have just a great time together. Everybody leaves, and Cheryl and I are doing the dishes, cleaning up after. And uh, Cheryl said this, quote, unquote. She said, Jeff, I just love those people. Isn't that cool? She said, Jeff, I just love those people. And, And, I mean, it's not like I prodded or anything like that. It just came out like that. And that's exactly our prayer for you. Um, thirdly mission is always accomplished by faith you see they they go out on their journey there's no they don't take money they don't take food they don't take credit cards they take one tunic so they have to look for hospitality from others Uh, they can't use one tunic to cover up with or make a tent out of they have to look for hospitality And uh, it's amazing to me, Jesus didn't say, okay, I'm not going to send you out until you raise so much money support. Once you raise so much money, then you can go out. He says, no, I don't want you to take anything, but I want you to go out. So it made me think, I'm not pleading for irresponsibility. Uh, What I am pleading for is when God says it's time to go. And when he says, I don't want you to take anything, we take Jesus at his word. And when he says it's time, and when he says go, then what we do is obey in faith, realizing that God will provide in His way through God's people. Now, again, I am not saying that oh, you're going to build a building. Well, just start building. I'm not saying that. You, you know, you use what you don't do anything until Jesus clearly says. It's time. Now's the time. This is what I absolutely want you to do. Go for it, and then if that is the case, God will provide. Now, if it's not, if it's your own dreams and own concoctions, it's going to be disastrous uh, for you. But if it is God's will, then go for it. And then our part is also that God provides through his people. That's how the Lord provided for those two, the twos that went out. Uh fourthly, mission results in dual receptions. We already saw that. Uh, we saw it, for example, in last week when Jesus went to jairus's house. They embraced Jesus. They loved Jesus. They, they were amazed in a wonderful way. But then when he went home, they were amazed in a really bad way. They were scandalized by Jesus. So they it's a dual reception. Just like he then sends the disciples out and he says, Look, The same is going to be with you. Some people are going to embrace it. Some people are going to reject you. Get used to it. It's not about you. It's about me, Jesus says. You just be faithful. And so there's dual dual receptions. Um, This leads us to a part of this text that I wasn't going to even touch on. And it just makes you wonder. I mean, the book of Mark is so small. Anyway, why would he take so much time talking about somebody getting beheaded now that everybody's awake? Uh, I was just going to leave it off, and I thought, no, this is the climax of Mark. Mark, throughout his book, has these, these little vignettes that are pointing to the end. And this is one of them. And it just makes the point of what Jesus is saying. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's got 12 disciples now. He says, look, you're going to be sent out on a mission, the Great Commission. Not everybody's going to accept it. He goes home. Not everybody's going to accept it. He sends out the two. Uh, Not everybody's going to accept it. And then he gives a picture of John the Baptist getting beheaded. Like he says, you know, doing God's will might not always work out in your mind, what you think is wonderful. And in this case, for John the Baptist, it didn't. But he, he, there is a reason it's here. And that's why I want to hit it real quick. So what's happening, Jesus is doing all of these miracles. Some people are just enthralled by it. Some people are rejecting it. And now there's this guy, Herod, Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod, he, he's actually a tetrarch. He's ruler over a quarter of a kingdom, a tetrarch, okay? So here's Herod Anabas, and um, Herod, when he hears of all these miracles going on, he goes, oh my goodness, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And you think, why would he be so upset about John the Baptist? It's because he killed John the Baptist, that's why, because Herod, took his brother Philip's wife Herodias who happened to be actually the daughter of Aristobulus who is related to him making Herodias not only not only did he marry his brother's wife he also married his own niece this is a mess folks it's a mess okay so John the Baptist does his deal. He just is calling people to repentance. He called Herod and Herodias to repentance, and Herodias wanted him dead. Herod Herod actually liked John the Baptist. He was enthralled by his teaching, and so he throws him in prison. And so he has a birthday party. At the birthday party, their child, their own child, Salome, now dances before all the people at the party and she impresses everybody. So egotistical Herod goes, oh, this is so great. I'll ask for anything up to half of my kingdom. Well, he didn't even have a half a kingdom. He had a quarter of a kingdom to begin with. So all he have given away was an eighth, okay? So he said, uh, so he's a nut. He said, I'll give you half my kingdom. And so his own daughter goes to mommy and says, what should I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. So she goes up to Herod and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And she adds her own little twist to it on a platter. And you think, why? Why in the world would Mark spend so much time on this lurid, horrid, Detail this gross tale in, in the middle of the gospel. Why such a story of evil? It's because Mark is preparing us for what's to come later in the story. He's pointing to the end. At the climax of the gospel, Jesus, just like John, is seized and thrown in prison. His execution just like John's, was delayed. And just as lurid evil was exhausted upon John, evil was exhausted upon Jesus on the cross. And what Mark is preparing us for is that it's our evil. It's our sin that was poured upon Jesus on the cross. You see, John is decapitated as a door prize. Jesus is crucified in our place on our behalf so we can have life. Five real cl- and See, baptism is a picture of that. When a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus, it's, their, their sins are washed away. And it's just saying, God, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I need your gift of salvation. And the waters of baptism is a picture of Jesus washing our sin away. And we take on the identity of Christ. Five real powerful lessons from this passage. Please don't let familiarity with Jesus keep you from enjoying a relationship with him. Don't just say, oh, I go to church every week. No, just be enraptured by who Jesus is, enraptured with who God is. Secondly, rejection, though it's very painful, is necessary. So, expected. Well, why is it necessary? Because it's not about us, it's about God and His glory. That kernel of wheat has got to die before it can bear fruit. Secondly, rejection is painful and it's profitable. So embrace it. We are thrust into a new and larger family and onto a stage much larger than our home could ever be. Fourthly, the greatest gift that a disciple can give, and we see this in this passage, is the gift of being sent, sent out. I think when my parents, and I know they love me, and, but the greatest gift they could give to me is when I was sent. I was in school. I hated school. I hated everything about school. I I brought home F's in conduct. I hated bringing home F's in conduct because my dad would always take the belt to me. And so they sent me to an all-boys school in New Orleans. Uh, The the rejection was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It was absolutely the best thing. But they sent me to an all-boys school. They sent me off to college. They sent me grad school. In all of these things, folks, it's, it's when I was sent out into this larger world other than my home where there are no props, I discovered the love of Jesus Christ. And it's in, in that place of loving the, the discovery of, of who Jesus is and who God is and how much he loves me that I could experience the blessings of his body. And now, Cheryl and I have had the privilege of giving our kids, six kids, the greatest blessing we could ever give them, and that's the gift of being sent out where they can really discover who God is, who Jesus is, who the body of Christ is. And now we've got 22 grandkids that will also have to be sent out as well. And then the final paragraph teaches us that Jesus is our only hope. Mark wants us at the end of the gospel to realize that he wants us to understand that it is our grief and our sorrow uh, has to intensify so much when finally we understand that it was our not Herod's not Salome but it was our lurid sin that crucified the Lord Mark desperately wants us to see how much God loves us and what God has done by sending his son to die in our place. But we have to come to that point of repentance. They were sent out with that message, repentance. That's John the Baptist's message where we realize repentance is just saying, I can't do it myself. Life isn't about me. It's, it's not me calling my own shots. It's not me making my own decisions. It's, it's turning, realizing there is a God who loves me and I want to put my faith, my trust exclusively in him. That is what baptism pictures well, let me pray for us, and then we will actually uh, be, be able to experience those wonderful baptisms. Let's pray. Lord, it is so clear, you are our only hope. And I just pray that, um, Jesus, please don't let familiarity with you keep anyone from entering into a personal relationship with you. Because I, I know, Lord, there are people here who are just like the crowds that Jesus and the disciples walked around. There are people who are harassed, helpless. There are those who are fatigued and maybe forlorn or dejected or deserted or distressed or depressed, and they absolutely are here needing the healing power of the gospel. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that if there's anybody here questioning that, that that Uh, through the words, your words from your gospel, whether it be through the testimony of the baptisms, Lord, that they would understand that Jesus loves them so much and that he died in their place and that they can receive the gift of his love and trusting. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.